1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Before the Lord, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Here ends the New Testament reading. As we stand, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts now from your word and change us by your spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Please do have a seat. And turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 on page 987. I don't know if you've heard the story about Kevin or Kev from Yorkshire who couldn't make up his mind which woman to marry. Sharon had a quick tongue, but a great sense of humor. Maria was sweet-natured and serious. Sharon had blonde hair and blue eyes. Maria had black hair and green eyes. Over and over again, he compared the two. Both of them liked him, and he liked both of them. One day, he was passing a Catholic church, and he decided in desperation to go in and pray. Dear God, he cried, falling on his knees, who should I marry? I know I have to make a choice. So help me, Lord. What do you say, Sharon or Maria? Then the miracle occurred. He looked up, and there above the altar, in gold letters, was the advice. Have Maria. So he did. And Christians can often get worried, not just about bad jokes, but about the will of God. Who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I do? Which school should I send my children to? And if you're Lee, what motorbike should I buy? And how should I ride it? (laughs) Now, at least the first four are not irrelevant questions. They are big decisions some of us still have to make. But rarely does God reveal the specific answers to those questions in the Bible. 
Instead, he asks us to trust him, that he's in control, and to make wise choices along the way according to the principles of his word, the Bible. So, for example, in terms of who to marry, if that's God's will and gift for you, the Bible is not going to give you a name, of course. But it does say that a Christian should only marry another Christian of the opposite sex who is biblically free to marry. You see, what's absolutely clear in God's word is that God's overall will for our lives is that we become more like Christ. More like Christ in attitude, in character, and in obedience. This side of heaven, before becoming like him in every way in heaven. Or to use a word that appears here in verse 3, sanctification, meaning to become more and more holy, and therefore more and more like Christ. God's will, purpose, and desire for you, and what is at work at, what is doing in you now by his Holy Spirit, if you've put your faith in Christ, is to change you is your sanctification. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And we're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this, as verse 3 goes on, by, for example, avoiding or abstaining from sexual immorality in Christ's strength. Have you got that? Do you understand that? Well, to be even clearer, let me explain further. Because the Bible uses this term sanctify in two ways. First, there's the idea of being sanctified or made holy in Christ. Or set apart for Christ. This happens instantly when we become a Christian. When we put our trust in Christ. We're then citizens of heaven. We become children of God. And he becomes our heavenly father. In Christ we have a new status. Previously we were dead in our sin. But now as Christians we're alive in Christ. Holy or set apart for him. But another way the word or idea is used is as a process of change sanctification so our status is that we're holy in Christ but we're not yet perfect so in practice we're commanded to live holy lives more and more in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit as Paul implies here this is what pleases God and it's by his power And as I've already said, we're to cooperate with his spirit in this. God works in us. And we work it out in the power of the spirit. As Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. As Christians, we're freed to live as we're intended to live in this world. For Christ. To please God. Day by day, to be transformed, to be more like Jesus. To be in the world, but not of the world. 
making a difference for him. Now when Paul says that God's will is your sanctification, he has the second meaning in mind. We've already been set apart for Christ, but now we're to actively live differently in a rebellious world in every area of our lives. But the area Paul focuses chiefly on here is our sexual conduct. Verse 3, it is God's will that we should avoid or abstain from sexual immorality. You know, deep down, we know that there's a real value and meaning to be found in a loving relationship. But if love is reduced to just sex, which is basically lust, then that lasting relationship is forever going to elude us. But according to the Bible, deep, satisfying relationships are possible if love is not seen in terms of what we can get, but in what we can give. Then we can start to function as we were originally designed by God and so discover true freedom and value. And that's precisely what the gospel offers and brings about. And we see it being worked out here in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. So what do right relationships look like when God sets to work in our lives? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we come face to face with what it means to be part of a counterculture. We're given a glimpse here of a model church engaging in model behavior in stark contrast to the sexually immoral culture of that day when all vices were basically accepted. For example, it was considered fine for a married man to have a mistress and a sex slave and a prostitute. In fact, what Paul covers here are the practical implications of what he prays back in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 12. You might want to have a look at that. May the Lord, he prays, make your love increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we for you. So he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul taught not only the essence of the gospel, but the essence of the good life. Not only about the absolute necessity of faith in Jesus Christ, but also the behavior and good works which should flow from such a faith in Christ. No amount of good works can save us from our sin. Only faith in Jesus' death and resurrection can do that. But good works are in part what we're saved for. Do you see? And if we're going to make an impact on the surrounding sexually immoral culture of our day, so that everyone starts to talk about our Christian faith, as they did the faith of these Thessalonians, then we need to take obeying Christ seriously. The world doesn't respect us when we simply go with the flow. 
We're more likely to get a hearing, albeit initially a reluctant one, when we start to speak and act differently. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through or by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You can't get any plainer than that. Christian morals are as absolute and universal as the gospel itself. That is, they are for all people, for all time. So how does all this work out? Well, first, we must begin by having a right view of ourselves. Verse 3 again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. As I've said, in one sense, Christians are already sanctified by believing the good news of Jesus. You now belong to God, but you're now to be caught up in the process whereby you become more and more the people God wants you to be. To put it very simply, if you're a Christian, start acting like one. And so secondly, have a right view of sex, verses 3 to 8. The second half of verse 3 is perhaps better translated like this. Make a total break with all forms of sexual immorality. It rules out sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, and all forms of homosexual behavior. It also causes us to be wise in avoiding temptation, such as pornography, and putting ourselves in compromising situations with members of the opposite sex. Verse 5 says that the way the unbeliever behaves is to be different. To the way the Christian behaves. Sorry, I should say that again, just to be very clear. Verse 5 says that the way the unbe- that's the way the unbeliever behaves, not the Christian. The Christian is to be different. Positively, Paul makes it clear that sex, properly understood and practiced, has a God-given context, marriage, between one man and one woman for life, and a God-given style, holiness and honor. So first, sex has a God-given context, marriage, as we see in verses 4 and 5. Now here, the word body should be translated wife. The word control means to take for oneself. In other words, this is about how Christian husbands should treat their wives. Namely, that lust should not be confused with love. And that it's only in love, with its proper sexual expression, only within marriage, that a husband and wife honor one another and so remain holy. 
It's when lust becomes the dominant driving force, either, bef- either before marriage or outside marriage or even within marriage in abuse that we act as if we don't know God and so deny our faith. How many a young Christian's girl's life has been damaged because a young Christian man decided to forget that he knew God and act like one of the lads? How many a Christian wife's heart has been broken and family shattered because a Christian husband mistook infatuation with another woman for real love while persuading himself that the wife of his youth no longer cared? How many Christian women have felt cheapened and used because they feel they're only valued for two things, sex and cooking? The woman finds herself locked into a marriage in which the husband shows no tenderness, no sensitivity, no meaningful communication or sharing throughout the day, just demand at night. Do you realize that it's wrong to take advantage of a fellow Christian? That's what Paul says in verse 6. And I think brother there should be taken to include sister. In other words, such attitudes and actions go beyond the boundaries set by God, venturing into forbidden territory and taking what is not yours by right. And the Lord, says Paul, will punish men for behaving like this. And to underscore the seriousness of it all, he adds, as we told you and solemnly warned you. Now this doesn't mean that those who fall into sexual sin can't be forgiven and restored. Of course, that's made possible by the gospel itself. There's forgiveness for all sexual sin at the cross of Christ as we turn to and trust in him. But the emphasis here is on living a life which brings delight to our Heavenly Father and blessings to his people. So can I ask, is that what you're seeking to do? Christians often ask, what is God's will for my life? Well, here it is. Be holy. And Paul goes on to spell out what a holy life looks like in forming right relationships, which is my final point, verses 9 to 12. Look at verses 9 and 10 to begin with. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Do you know the two great commandments which summarize the Ten Commandments? Love God with all your being. Or verse 1, live in order to please God. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Or here, brotherly love. They're the basis for this passage. 
and the work of the Holy Spirit within us as he leads us to the Bible to see what such love involves. And notice there's no point at which we can say, I've arrived and got the t-shirt. These Thessalonians are outstripping everyone else in terms of practical Christian love, showing care for people in Macedonia, miles away. But Paul still says to them, yes, but let's have more and more and more. And that's what God is saying to us this morning too. So in verses 11 to 12, we're given three down-to-earth ways of showing brotherly love. A love which enriches the congregation, this church. First of all, A, aspire to or make it your business to do what? To lead a quiet life, says Paul. That's a life which is the opposite of frantic activity. Rushing from one thing to the next and never taking time to be quiet before God. Drawing on the spiritual resources he provides. Cultivating a calm manner which can be an example and a help to others. So can I ask, do you take time to be with God? Or are you forever running around? B, then mind your own affairs or business. To be busy is one thing. To be busy bodies is another How many Christians all but ruin the smooth running of a church by interfering in other people's business instead of getting their own life sorted out? Yes, with the best intentions, but often with disastrous results. Confidence is being betrayed and gossip set alight. So again, can I ask, are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? See, thirdly, finally, don't trade on the goodwill of others, thinking, oh, I'll be all right. I don't have to work. The church will look after me. No, says Paul. Work with your own hands, whether that's paid work or not. Now, Paul's not attacking someone who's unemployed but wants to work if they're able to. But he is saying that a lazy And idle Christian is a contradiction in terms. And the aim and result of all this? So that you may walk. You may please God properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, a church like this, which loves each other and supports one another in finding work, etc., etc., such as through Christians Against Poverty, will impress what is a very selfish world. And that selfish world will ask, what power can produce this? The answer, of course, is the gospel of Christ. How will our culture be changed for good? How will the incessant greed and living only for the now be reversed? 
Is it going to be through the general election? Well, not by government policy. Government policy can't do it. It will be changed by people like you and me, showing what real community, real relationships are. God-centered and full of the love which Christ alone can give. I need to finish. Let me do so by asking you this question. What do you think are the top two Christian ministry wreckers? Well, you may have already guessed. It's sex and money. And the third is the misuse of power. But they're not just wreckers of Christian ministries. They're also wreckers of Christian lives. Right from the start, sex and money have always been an issue for God's people. All through the Old Testament, God's people struggled with getting a right view of sex and a right view of money. Even Bible giants like King David messed up in this area. And no doubt many of us have too, whether in thought or in deed. So be warned. And instead, be sanctified through trusting and obeying Christ in the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. And let's for a moment just be quiet before God and his word and respond to it ourselves in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that uh, anyone here who is yet to put their faith in the Lord Jesus might through that passage have been encouraged to do so and so be washed and so be sanctified and so be made new in Christ by the power of his Spirit. And I pray for the rest of us too who are trusting in Christ that we might indeed live more and more to please God by the power of his Holy Spirit. Lord, keep working in us, changing us for your glory, for the blessing of other people, for the people we're going to meet today and our Scream Sunday to show your love and your power to change. We ask this for your glory. Amen.